So we are looking at Jesus' condemnation of the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he is very plain spoken about the things that he sees them failing in. They appear to be such highly uh, devout religious leaders, and yet he really takes the mask off and shows what their true colors are like. So would somebody read 23 and 24? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, he's condemning them for a lack of balance, a lack of perspective. Because what were they really worried about doing? Tithing. Tithing what? Spices. These spices. These little garden herbs that are practically worthless. So the tithe on these is not going to amount to much at all. But they're very precise. They're very detailed about that. You want to get even the tithe on the smallest herb. Well, that's not so bad, I guess. It's good to want to be precise when it comes to serving God. But what was the problem? I neglected what was the most important. Yeah, like what? Justice and mercy. Would you say those might be a little more important than tithing the uh, little spices? Yeah. You know, if you're spending most of your time worrying about getting all the inventory of those herbs, and you're neglecting, you know, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness, we got a real problem here. He, he uses a great illustration of that. What's that? Draining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Yeah, that's really kind of funny. You ever swallowed a gnat, by the way? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And how is it? Nasty bite. Once you get past the thought of it, it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's annoying. <laughs> They're a little critical. You really kind of hate doing it. And it's kind of disgusting if you think about it very long, but it doesn't usually ruin your day. You know, so you can move on. Uh, <laughs> you, you, try, you try not to, you know, have a whole bunch of them. You know, if you saw a bunch of gnats floating in your lemonade, you'd probably pass on it. But but if you happen to, you know, swallow one or two, it doesn't kill you. But what about swallowing a camel? Any of you ever done that? <laughs> Can you imagine what that would be like? Pretty painful, I would think. You know, I have an idea it would have a really hard time going down. <laughs> I'm not even sure how you chew it. And might be where you'd start, you know. I, I, I've always kind of envisioned this guy with a camel's hoof sticking out of his throat, you know, or something. You know, kind of pooched out. Uh, or something like that. I don't know if you could even get it down that far, actually. But that's kind of what I've envisioned. It just, it just wasn't going to work. And can you imagine somebody who was just super, super picky about gnats? And they strained everything two or three times to make sure they didn't have any gnats in it. And then they tried swallowing a camel. What would you think about him? Time for the funny part. Yeah, yeah. There's something really wrong with that picture. You know, I mean, wow. I mean, how, would, how could you be that picky with a gnat and try to swallow a camel? But that's what Jesus said this is like. They're so picky about these little spices and they completely neglect the basic principles of their relationship with God. How could they do that? You know, but sometimes, you know, 
people think that being really worried about details kind of exempts them from the responsibility to do the more important things. So if you can get really hung up on the herbs, maybe you can ignore some of those big things that are harder to do. You know, I think sometimes we kind of feel that way. You know, if we make sure we've got every last I dotted and T crossed, then if we just skipped, you know, a whole chapter, it's okay. Because we got all our I's dotted and T's crossed. Does that make sense? You see what they were doing? And I think people do that a lot today. We've got to have balance and perspective. Thoughts and comments on that? If it, if it is, uh, you know, if, if it were a set of rules like they had made it and keeping each one, that, that just has a lot of problems. And, and one, doesn't it just, doesn't that in itself completely take away uh, the concept even of grace? I mean, if, if it is, in other words, if we go through here and write down every rule like they appear to be doing, which we sometimes do, then it almost, it almost just completely does away with grace. Because now you have an exact right and wrong, and you either fall out or you're in. <laughs> because you've determined every single rule, and if you miss one of them, you're done. Yeah. And, well, it may lead to several things. I think from the Pharisees, it led to self-righteousness. Because they were careful about those little details. Exactly. They thought they were better than everybody else. Yeah, so, so you, and I think, I see that as a similar thing. I don't need the grace. I've got all the rules, and I'm, I'm just keeping them. And as long as I'm keeping them, then I could say, well, I have God's grace because I'm keeping all the rules. But that's not what the grace does. And almost always in that situation, then, the person is neglecting what really matters because whoever has justice, mercy, and faithfulness to the degree that God has the right to expect. So we only measure up when we diminish the law into a mass of little details. And, so, and then there are laws like that that, that can't be a, a box to check. Right. It's a scale. Right. It's, it's an... It's an infinite, right. continue to grow in love and mercy. It's and those like things don't seem so important because there, there's not an exact level or definition. Right. And so you neglect those because, well, who can say you're really sinning if you only love this much? But if you don't tithe the dill, right. uh, then you miss that you, one. You can't check the box. Right, exactly. <laughs> so we, we focus on the things that you can check the box, not on the things that really matter. Almost, yeah. Yeah. Cameron. Um, before I make this comment, were the Pharisees also Levites, or could they be? I don't think they would never be, but it would be more common, perhaps, for Levites to be Sadducees. But I would think some of the Levites out in the countryside were probably Pharisees too. Okay, because when I saw this, I thought of um, them. They're trying. The ties were to go to the Levites, and so they're like, "Well, I gotta make sure I'm getting everything <laughs> I possibly can, and you can't forget to give me this mint. You can't forget me to give this stuff." And that reminded me of something I was talking to somebody the other day. Um, and a church down the street from here, um, somewhere nearby, they, they, um, they knew somebody that went to this church who was gone for two weeks, and this church had like some 2,000 two, two people or whatever. And then these people come back after two weeks of being on, they had this note from the church, and they're like, 
Um, we have noticed that you guys have neglected to give us your donation in the past two weeks. Wow. And wow. didn't even like um, check in like, well, you guys haven't been here. We're worried about you. Is well, you guys haven't given your donation in a couple of weeks. You haven't given them a plate. We're just checking on you. Make sure you can get, can do that. And they're <laughs> wow. They've neglected the weightier parts of the law because they're trying to get the money. They're trying to get things. We're going to see that you know with the Pharisees and other passages uh, where you know in Mark and Luke particularly talks about how they devoured widows' houses. They would exploit the poor for their own financial gain. And so that was another factor in some of these things. You know, they're easy traps for us to fall into. You know, so we have to really be careful about that. And one of the things that you see in a lot of their rules is their rules weren't really Bible rules anyway. They were just kind of applications that they quantified. They were not things you could just really prove from the scriptures that this needs to be done. We always want to please God when we love him. We, we, we always seek to do all that he wants. But if we really love him, we seek most the qualities that make us most like him. We seek most the things that he emphasizes the most because we love him and we trust him. So if he doesn't say anything about tithing the herbs, we may tithe the herbs, but we're not going to worry about that nearly as much as we worry about these things that he keeps stressing over and over again because we realize these are the things that he really wants us to have our main focus on in trying to become like he is. It's like with the greatest command that it wasn't like to follow follow all the laws or like check all your boxes. It was to love God and then the rest of it could fall into place. That's right. Yes. Yes. It's, it's really important that we get the order on that right and that we really focus on our love for God and not on just, you know, tithing some spices. Well, and these, these three, the justice, mercy, and faithfulness, are difficult to, it's sort of difficult to write rules that if you follow them, then you exhibit the justice, the mercy, and the faithfulness in, in the way that it's supposed to be. So yes. it was so much easier to check off, okay, mm -hmm. there's a tenth of a mint, and a tenth of a dill, and a tenth of a kitten. Yes. And, you know. Yes. We tend to zero in on things that have an exact measure. And some basic fundamental qualities are not like that. And they become easier to neglect, even though they're much more important and ought to get a lot more of our attention. Well, how about 25 to 28? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Well. What do you see that they were focused on here? What they look like. Yes. They, uh, they were very concerned with the external. You know, like whitewashed tombs. Uh, or even like people who were concerned about the cleanliness of the outside of the cup and of the dish, but not the inside. 
Now, what's the advantage of being concerned about getting that cup or dish clean on the outside? What's the advantage? Yeah, what's the advantage? Why would you focus on that? It looks looks good. Makes it look good. It makes it look like you're being careful about cleanliness and, you know, all that. What's important about getting it clean on the inside? And it actually <laughs> is clean. Yeah, exactly. Don't drink dirt you don't have your gnats in it. Or yeah, or, or penicillin or whatever. You know, mold or other rotting food. You know, that would be gross. You know, I'd really kind of like to have the outside of my cup clean. But I'm a lot more concerned that the inside be clean because that's what comes in contact with my food. But it's so easy for us in our spiritual life to focus on what people can see. So we think about, oh, there's Christians around. You better be, you don't say that. You know, don't, don't do that because there's, there's, some, there's, there's some brethren who might hear you. You're in the church building now or whatever. Well, what would you say to that? Pharisees, hypocrites. Isn't God always around? I was going to say, there's always somebody listening. Yeah, exactly. That you would be more concerned about what you look like to other people than what you are to God. And he sees the inside and the out, and he sees what really matters the most. You know, having a whitewashed tomb doesn't make the bones any less dead on the inside of that tomb. They're still corrupt and decaying and stink. But that whitewash sure does make the tombstone look pretty. You know, so we often are concerned about looking pretty, but not about being right before God. We need to get our mind off of what are people going to think and how are they going to see me? And, you know, how can I make sure they don't find out that I'm really a scoundrel? You know, that's not very edifying. Comments and thoughts? I once took for a Bible class lesson that I was teaching on this. Took two, you know, Dixie cups and put mud inside of one of them, and then put that the clean cup in it. And then I said, "Okay, now which cup do you want?" And you know, they had to figure out, "Do I want the one that looks great on the outside?" And I, I wiped around the top so you know it was the mud right. was down far enough they couldn't exactly see it. But yeah, it's a pretty good demonstration. Yeah, it is. I think we'd all choose the same cup. <laughs> Comments and thoughts. All right, well, 29 to 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we have been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves so that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers, your serpents, your brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and will crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon you this generation. Okay. So, what's he accusing them of? It's like they're 
trying to honor the prophets with their tombs or with their monuments. But they're part of the reason they're dead. <laughs> yes. They're more concerned with burying prophets than listening to them. So they really love the dead ones. <laughs> and they, they honor their memory by building their tombs. And they think if they had lived back then, you know, we would have uh, listened to the prophets. But the truth is they're not listening to the word of God now. Why would we think they'd be listening to them back then? You know, they wouldn't be facing these consequences if they'd been listening to them. And uh, this is kind of, you almost see that the sins of the nation just gradually accumulate. And to fill up the cup of sin that, God lead, that leads God to pour out the cup of wrath, that's rarely the work of one generation. It's usually an accumulation of several generations that keeps adding more sin and more sin and more sin until it finally gets up to a certain level and God sends his wrath upon that people or that nation. And so he says that my wrath is going to be poured out on, on this generation. You're going to fill up that, that guilt. Uh, you know, God is patient, but there's a limit. And I wonder how many times we, you know would be more interested in honoring a dead prophet than living, listening to someone who is actually teaching the words of that prophet today. You know, if you ask people how they felt about the apostles, at least people in the church, what would they say? What do, what do they think about the apostle Paul? Greatest. Yeah, oh man, he's wonderful, awesome. What do you think about what he said? Oh, tremendous. But what if somebody started trying to, you know, encourage them to follow what he said? <laughs> you know, oftentimes that's another matter. You know, so that's the problem, is sometimes we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're paying attention to God's message when we're not. And he says, I'll send you prophets and wise men and scribes. And how are they going to treat those? Kill them, scourge them, persecute them. Same. Yeah. I mean, really bad. And, you know, why? They don't fit with what their yeah. program is. What they say isn't what they want to hear. You know, they love to honor the memory of the dead ones, but they don't want to change their life to fit the message. So... He says, so that upon you, verse 35, may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Who was Abel? Yeah, first martyr in the Bible. Who is this Zechariah? Maybe. We have a problem here, and we're not sure how to look at this. Uh, there's a Zechariah that was killed by Joash. Remember, Joash was following the Lord during the days of his uncle-slash-father, Jehoiada, who lived for 130 years. He was the king that was declared king when he was seven, but as long as his, the guy who brought him up, raised him, was alive, he did well. But once Jehoiada died, he turned bad. And Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, was a prophet and went to rebuke him. 
and he killed him. That's Second Chronicles 24. Now, if, uh, if that's what he's talking about, then their order of books in the Old Testament was different than our order. Same books, they just grouped them differently. You know, the order of the books in the Bible is not something, you know, ordained by God. And so their book of Second Chronicles was their last book. Now, all the other books were in there. They were just in a different order. So, from Genesis 4 to 2 Chronicles 24, that may be saying from the first martyr to the last martyr. Do you know a problem with that view? Son of Berechiah? Yes. Who was Zechariah the son of Berechiah? Not that guy you were talking about. Not that guy I was talking about. Who was he? He was the prophet. He was the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, remember, from Zechariah 1. So that would appear to be the Zechariah who wrote the book of Zechariah. However, the way their order of the books was, that book of Zechariah wasn't the last book in their Bible, or the second to last book, or anything like that. It might be, though, he was taking chronological order. And chronologically, Zechariah was near the end of the Old Testament revelation. There's another problem with making it that Zechariah, though. What's that? We don't know about him being killed. So we've really got two options. We've got the option that it's the first to the last martyr in their order of the books, and that would make it Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, back in 2 Chronicles 24, or that it's the Zechariah the prophet, in which case it's chronological order, Zechariah the prophet, the one who wrote Zechariah, being near the end chronologically in the Old Testament. There's problems either way. I don't know the answer for sure. There's things you could say. You know, there's, there's obvious possibilities. Maybe somebody just slipped in a scribal error and just knew Zechariah so well they just automatically put in the son of Zechariah. But I don't know of textual variants on that. So that's a little, you know, we'd rather not have to say that. Uh, maybe, maybe, Berechiah was in the lineage of the other Zechariah, you know, the one that was the son of Jehoiada in Second Chronicles 24. But we don't know that. <laughs> maybe the Zechariah the prophet was killed between the temple and the altar, but we don't know that. So that is just kind of a problem for us. We're not sure at this point, you know, how to resolve that. I slightly lean toward making this Zechariah, the one who Joash killed, and work on other explanations of him adding the son of Berechiah. But he may be trying to say he means the Zechariah that wrote the book of Zechariah, and that's why he says the son of Berechiah. That, I just don't have a definite answer for that. Uh, clearly, he's trying to say from the first to the last martyr, whether he's saying last in the order of your books or the last chronologically, either one of those would make sense. Or maybe he's just saying from A to Z. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Uh, the only problem is, uh, I, I, you know, well, I just don't know anything about all that. I've forgotten my letters in Hebrew, so. It works in English. Anybody know Hebrew? I met him once. Oh, yeah. Well, when you meet him again, ask him about that. But probably wouldn't work in another language. Although it would work in Portuguese. Maybe Portuguese and yeah. At any rate, God is going to come down on this generation. All these things will come against 
this generation. You know, I mean, they really have been like their fathers. They have rejected the prophets God sending to them just like their forefathers have done from the days of Abel. And God's tired of it, and he's going to lower the boom on this generation. That's what Jesus is telling them. Here, maybe a day or two before they arrest him. You know, we're right up to D-Day here. You know, so things are kind of tense. And Jesus is not, you know, someone has said he, he speaks with the tact of somebody who sends a, a cannon volley across the bow of an enemy ship, you know. He's very, very, uh, you know, direct about this, and he doesn't mince any words. Anything you want to say? It's a lot easier to honor people after they're dead. Why? <laughs> well, we do it with the presidents. You know, go back and, oh, you know, he was a great man, like JFK. I mean, you know how he's held oh, yes. because he was murdered and all. Well, if you look seriously at what he was doing and some of the things, I don't think had he lived, he would not have been a great president. <laughs> and even in the Old Testament, didn't they do that? They'd run some king out of town and kill him and then drag him back and bury him in the tomb of his fathers. <laughs> There's nothing like dying that makes people honor you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we all like the dead ones better than you know, in the In the line of kings of Judah, they did that numerous times. Uh-huh. You know, they yeah. kill him and take over and, and, oh yeah, well, let's take him and bury him in the king's tomb. In the <laughs> Give him appropriate honor for... Yes, because he wasn't, after all, he was the king. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of times it's easier to ignore what they wrote than what they're saying to you right in your face. You know, So it's easy to think, oh, we'd have done what they said, but are you doing what they're saying for you to do now? You know, we'd have never crucified Jesus, but do we have the same attitudes they did? All right, 30, go ahead, Chris. He said, uh, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. I didn't know if there's any significance to that. You know, he's accusing them. Were they trying to separate themselves from that? Yet they're saying, uh, in a way, they're almost indicting themselves? Or what exactly? Well, I think he's just saying, you have a great family resemblance to them by your behavior. So you prove you're just like they are by how you treat the living prophets today. Yeah, I was trying to make the connection though. It says if we had been living in the days of our fathers, so there is an admission that they are the sons of the ones who killed the prophets. And that seems to be what he's saying. Perhaps. You're, you're, you're admitting that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Yeah. But I don't know what meaning, I mean, why is that okay. really significant? Yeah, I see what you're saying. I don't have a good answer to them. And are there many other references where Jesus would use things that are not from the known um, you know, Old Testament? There aren't, you know, there aren't many examples where he would say, cite an example that we are not aware of, I don't, I don't think. But. Um, there are examples, at least in the letters. Um, for example... Yeah, Jude makes a couple references. Hebrews makes a couple references. Um, so there are a couple of things later on in the New Testament. And even Stephen's speech tells us a few things we don't get from the Old Testament. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Paul told us the names of the Egyptian uh, magicians, Janus and Jambres. So I'm wondering if some of that general. could have been handed down. Yes. Stuff, or? Most of those cases, we know it was. We've got information that says they believe that from their oral tradition. And we would not assume that all of their oral tradition was wrong. It wasn't necessarily right either. But some of it was probably accurate. And I'm assuming if it's cited by an inspired man, that it's right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. It's just a difficult issue. I don't have a, just the definitive answer on it. All right, 37 to 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, what had Jesus wanted to do with them? Protect them. Yeah, he had wanted to gather them together like a hen gathers her chicks. You know, he'd wanted to care for them and bless them. Why didn't he? They didn't want any part of it. Yeah. They wanted Jesus to be their savior. They didn't want him to tell them what they were supposed to do. <laughs> you know, and that didn't fit with his agenda. So they were not willing to submit to his care. So now he says, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. What does desolate mean? No children. <laughs> no inhabitants, maybe. Yeah. Deserted. Yes. Now, I think he may have something else in mind here. That's true, also. This could be several meaning. But what did they consider their special house? Temple. The temple, and that's what he's going to go on to talk about. I wonder if he means that the temple is going to be deserted. And if he means that, what is he really saying? Destroyed. Well, even before that, God's He's not there. Be exactly, God's moving out. Your temple is empty. It's just a hollow shell. I think that may be what he's saying. That your house, this temple, is, is without inhabitant anymore. And of course, if it doesn't have the Lord in it, then it's not special at all. And they don't have the Lord's presence with them. There's nothing to keep them from being destroyed. And so he says in verse 39, For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, the only way that they will ever see their Messiah again is if they receive him. You know, uh, that, that's, that's it. Unless they come to turn back to him and receive him, they will not see him again. He is leaving until such time as any of them will repent and turn back to him. So the, I think in the context, their, their nation is going to be abandoned by the Lord and that'll stay that way until any one of them chooses to turn back to God. Comments and thoughts? Is there more than one meaning to that phrase? Possibly. Is Probably. 
Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... Wasn't well, that... I don't know. Then cross reference back to Psalm 118. Mm-hmm. 1826. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. I mean, there are a couple things that would immediately, you know, might immediately come to mind would be the second coming. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, of course, he's already come into Jerusalem. Uh, <laughs> sim- similar type sayings there. Yeah, I, I, I like my, uh, my perspective that he's saying, I'm, I'm leaving your house is desolate until such time as you would welcome me back into your life. Right, because the other times they're not going to be the one saying, blessed is he. That's right. <laughs> At least not if they know who he is, not, you know, not as Jesus. The But his rejection of them is not definitive, as Paul would say in Romans 11. If they ever turn back to him, he'll, he's willing to accept any one of them again. But they're going to have to do it on the basis of recognizing him. There's no other way to get back in fellowship with God. So I'm, I'm thinking he's saying, we're the, you know, God's leaving you, and you won't. You, there's no way to receive him back until you're willing to turn back to me. It's just, it's kind of a strange way to word that. Blessed is he who comes in the Lord, because it's not something that we say commonly today in that context. Right. As somebody accepting Jesus. You know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Almost like you talk about a third person in there. Mm-hmm. Well, coming in the name of the Lord is coming with the Lord's authority or whatever. So this would at least be a representative of the Lord, if not the right. Lord himself. And it is capitalized, so... That should settle it. <laughs> yeah, you would assume that the name of the Lord, as far as the Lord's concerned, is the Lord God, now the he would be the question mark. Um, I'm not sure about the wording, but doesn't um, Ephesians 5 say something about we are called in the name of the Lord? We are called for his purposes or something like that? What, what exactly does it say? Ephesians 1 maybe talks about this. It talks about we are called in the name of the Lord. Well, could this be called for his purpose. that if we come in the name of the Lord, maybe it's not Jesus is talking about, it's not supposed to be capitalized since the original name of Catholic. And could it be that we are happy or we are blessed when we come in the name of the Lord? We're but it's what we say. Will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So, I, you know, I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic, but that's the only explanation that's ever made sense to me. So. Yeah. <laughs> that's a hard passage. So you're saying that this says he's leaving Jerusalem, like the temple, but he's coming back on an individual basis to the people. Yeah, he, he, you know, their house is desolate. God's not with them anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, from now on, you will not see me until you are willing to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until you're willing to welcome me back. I think individually. Okay. Because it wasn't a national return. But he did receive some of them back when they turned back to him. But that was also that was also going to be true regardless of their acceptance or, or rejection in a way, right? I mean, basically the house is going to be desolate because yes. that's not going to be... Yes. So maybe 
I guess I read this and it's like, oh, because of your, uh, your attitude is why it's going to be desolate. When in effect, that's not going to be the way to worship anymore. It's going to be an it's going to be a individual thing. Of course, the point he's making is still overall negative. From now on, you will not see me until right. you say. So he's still saying, and you can't come back to me. You can't even see me again until you're willing to welcome me, welcome me back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I was just saying it would be true in general, but he's really pointing it out to them. And it would right. be, it'll be more devastating to them because they are not going to be the ones that are going to be saying that. Right. <laughs> For the most part. So the temple is no longer the way to get to God. I think that's right. Jesus was the temple. Was God still in the temple at this time? Yeah. That's a controversial question. <laughs> okay. Hadn't he already left once? <laughs> he did. I say he came back, but that's a debatable I mean, they issue. They did sort us. of restore that. Okay. That's a, that's a debatable issue. Did you say what it means that they will not see me? Is that supposed to be literal, like you're physically not going to see me? Or oh, like it's, it's like, like a really strong, you can't even see me. Okay, but not like you. Yeah, I don't know that okay. he's really stressing the literal vision of him. Okay. Well, let's move on to something that I know equally little about. Chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the 